This is week three of what we're calling The Prodigal God. It's a series based in a book that we've got available in the library to check out. If you haven't been following uh, that, the basic gist is we're looking at the parable called The Prodigal Son. We're also looking at the first two parables before that. We talked already in the last couple weeks about the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And we began last week to look at this particular parable, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the loving father. We're calling it the parable of the prodigal God. The prodigal God. Because what's really highlighted in these, in these verses, in this passage here, is the idea that God himself is lavish, luxurious, out of, uh, out of our minds, kind of exorbitant with his grace. And that's why we're calling him the prodigal God in this series. We're going to pick up in just a second here, Luke 15, at verse 25, uh, to get back into the passage. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray for just a moment. Father in heaven, we come to you today asking for your spirit to be among us in a special way. You promised us that where two or more are gathered in your name, that you will be with them also. And we want that truth to be alive and well for us today, that your Holy Spirit would continue to meet with us in this service of worship so that the songs that we sing, the words that we say, the, the prayers we pray would all come together in a way that teaches us and informs us and instructs us so that we would leave this place shaped and formed by the character and nature of who you are. We want, Lord, to be continually developing in our lives, cultivating growth in our lives so that we would continue to become more and more like the Father in this parable, so that our hearts, that our internal parts would be shaped more and more by the goodness and holiness and mercy and love and grace that extend from your heart, so that, Father, we would reflect who you are to a world that so desperately needs to know you. Father, as we read through these verses and study your scripture today, we know of many Lost sons we know. We know of many in our own families and friends that need to know relationship with you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would make us mindful through your spirit of the ways in which we would be formed and shaped by this parable so that we would go out and search desperately, search for those who need to know you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, like I said, we're picking up in verses 25 through 27. We're going to focus on those here in just a second. Uh, if you haven't yet passed out the handouts, there are handouts in the center aisles. Let's go ahead and pass those down if you haven't already. We'll be going through here, and I'll tell you what those blanks are as we go along so that you can kind of follow the, the flow of thought here and uh, what we're going to be focusing on. If you'll remember from last week... Hi, choir. If you'll remember from last week, we talked about the younger son. If they're up there, you know, I'm always preaching to you all, so I figured I'd tell them a little bit. We're talking about the elder son today. Last week we talked about the younger son. This week we're going to focus on the older brother, the older brother who stayed behind. And we'll look at how that applies to us and in our lives today. We pick up in verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 25 of Luke 15. 
It says this, Now his older son, this is the son of the father here, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, that is the older son, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Verse 27, And he said to him, that is the servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28. This is where we'll focus most of our thoughts here on this first section. But he was angry, the older son. The older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Now, if you'll notice here in verse 27, it says, The father has killed the fattened calf. The father has killed the fattened calf. Now, this, this was an enormous and expensive extravagance in a culture where you don't just have meat at every meal. Having meat at a meal, let alone the fattened calf, would have been considered kind of a delicacy in that culture. But this wasn't just meat. This was the fattened calf. This is the fancy dish served only on the most special kinds of occasions. The father has broken out the fine china for this one. It's like when I grew up and we would have people over. I always knew it was a special occasion because we had soft drinks. We never had soft drinks. But all of a sudden, somebody would come over and I thought, Yes, I'm going to get some Coke out of this. I always remembered thinking that special occasions, man, I get soft drinks. So the older son, he fully realizes his father here is ecstatic with joy. He realized because of this kind of extravagance that the father was pulling out all the stops here. He's probably thinking to himself, the older son, first the robe and then the ring and then the sandals and now the fattened calf? I mean, he, he understands very well what's going on here. He sees what's happening here. But get this, verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. The older son refuses to go into the biggest feast his father has ever put on. Now, this was a deliberate act of disrespect on the part of the older brother here. It was his way of saying, I won't be a part of this family, nor will I respect your headship of it. I will not respect your authority as father. You can just sort of see him there, standing with his arms crossed in defiance. The word used here for anger isn't just sort of a, a bubbling up all of a sudden kind of anger. The word used here for anger is kind of a deeply rooted, a deeply seated anger. And it gets at this startling new understanding of lostness. That's the first blank there. The first thing we're talking about here is this startling new understanding of lostness. This older brother is so lost that his anger is a deep-seated deeply rooted, he's had it for a long time, kind of anger. The word used there means it's been a way of life for him. The son had been angry for a long time before this current situation. It had sort of been seething under the surface for years, only to explode now. Verse 28, though, it says this, His father came out and entreated him. 
He pled with him. He, he begged with him. This is a father who is proactive, to say the least. He doesn't just start a party and, and, and wait for people to come in. He doesn't say, you know, build it and you will come. He says, I will go find you. The father goes out to plead and to beg with him. That's another kind of scandalous response for a father of that day. We talked last week about how the father ran out to the younger brother coming back. This time we're talking about how he comes out of the party that he is in charge of and pleads with this older son. A scandalous idea that the father, the head of the household, would have to go out and beg for his son to be a part of this uh, celebration that's going on. So, so just as the father went out to bring his alienated younger son back into the family, now he had to do the same for the older brother. Just as the shepherd searched for the lost sheep in that first parable, just as the woman turned over the mattresses and looked under the couches for the coin in that second parable, just as the father ran out watching for that younger son in the first part of this third parable, the father now goes out to an angry and alienated older brother. Do you realize what Jesus is saying to his listeners here? What he's saying to them and to us by pointing this out, he is saying the older son is lost. The older son is actually lost in this parable. Even though he's been with the father the whole time. You see, the father represents God himself. And the meal, this party, it represents this feast of salvation. And in the end, the younger son, the immoral man, he comes in and is saved. But the older son, the one we would all call the good boy, the good son, he refuses to go in. And Jesus is pointing out that he's lost too. You see, the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus tell this parable, they knew exactly what Jesus meant by this. It was a complete reversal of everything that they'd grown up believing. You can almost hear the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes sort of gasp at the way that what Jesus is saying here upends their assumptions about being safe. It turns it inside out for them. And what is it? What is it that is keeping the elder brother out? It's because of his own selfish pride about his supposed morality. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, Look, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He says, Look, he doesn't even call him father. A blatant sign of disrespect for any son to just say, Look here, buddy. That's how the older son responds. The quote, good son here, is not lost in spite of his good behavior, but because of, at least according to him, but because of his own good behavior. So it is not his sin keeping him out like the younger son before. 
It is his own supposed righteousness. Friends, the gospel. The gospel is neither bottom-up religiosity or moral superiority. It is top-down grace. And that concept of top-down, God-to-us grace was completely astonishing and confusing to Jesus' hearers at the time. It may even be astonishing and confusing to you. So why is this elder son lost? As we talked about last week, the younger brother wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. That's the next blank there. The younger brother wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. The younger son wanted the benefits and the blessings of all the father's things, but not the character and the nature of the father himself. So how did the younger son get what he wanted? He left home. He broke the moral rules. He said, forget it, I'm out of here. But it becomes evident by the end that the elder brother, the older brother in this parable, also wanted selfish control of the father's wealth. He was unhappy with. He was even against the father's use of the possessions. He was against his youth, use of the robe and, and the ring and the fattened calf. But while the younger brother got control by taking his stuff and running away, we see that the older brother got control by staying home and by what he thought was being very good. So you see, he, the older brother, felt now that he had the right to tell the father what to do with his possessions because he had obeyed him perfectly. The older brother felt now that he had the right to tell the father what to do with his possessions because of his own good behavior. So it turns out that this parable is telling us there are two ways that we can be lost. Two ways that you can be and I can be our own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the laws and being bad. One is by breaking all the laws and being bad like the younger son. But one can end up being keeping all the laws and by being what we think is good. We think, if, if I can be so good that God has to answer my prayer, give me a good life, and take me to heaven, then in all I do, I may be looking to Jesus to be my helper and my rewarder, but He isn't my Savior. I then become my own Savior. You see, the difference between a religious person and a true Christian is that the religious person obeys God to get control over him and to get things from him, but the Christian obeys to receive just God, to love and to please and to draw closer to him, to become more and more the kind of person whose internal passion for God's goodness and holiness and righteousness become an external character displayed in us. So what are the signs? This is the next main point there, number two. What are the signs of this lostness? What does an older brother look like? We'll look especially at verses 28b through 30 here. For a few, few signs of that kind of lostness of the older brother that we're talking about. You see, some people are, are sort of total older brothers. They go to church 
They obey the Bible, but they do that out of the expectation that God owes them. Those types of folks, I'm afraid, have not understood the biblical gospel. But many Christians, and I put myself in this kind of category, many Christians who know the gospel are nonetheless more like elder brothers than even we know. Despite the fact that we know the gospel of salvation by grace with our heads, our hearts are so often like the elder brother's heart, his self-salvation, his obeying to get control of God, to bless me. We've probably all got a little bit too much older brother in us. I know that I do. So see if you recognize in yourself you know, these kinds of elder brother attitudes. The first is this. We already talked a little bit about it. Verse 28. A deep anger. A deep anger. In verse 28 it says he, he became angry. He was angry. Elder brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable and a good life if they try hard and live up to the standards. And some of us become pretty good at that. They say, my life ought to be going really well. And when it doesn't, we become angry. <laughs> we, we, in those circumstances, are, are, are sort of forgetting Jesus himself. He lived a better life than any of us, but suffered terribly. The second can be a joyless and mechanical kind of obedience in verse 29. It says, I've been slaving for you. A joyless and mechanical obedience. You see, elder brothers sometimes obey God as a means to an end, as a way to get the things that they really love. Now, of course, obedience to God can sometimes be extremely hard, but, but, but elder brothers find obedience virtually always a joyless, mechanical, slavish kind of obedience. The next one is sometimes a coldness to younger brother types. A coldness to the younger brother types. In verse 30 he says, But this son of yours came. He doesn't even have the dignity to call him his own, his own brother. He says, This is your son. You're responsible for this. The older son will not even acknowledge his own brother. You see, older brothers are too disdainful of others unlike themselves to be effective sometimes at finding lost sheep. Sometimes older brothers who will pride themselves on maybe doctrinal or moral purity unavoidably feel superior to those who don't have those things they do. How about a lack of assurance of the Father's love? Verse 29, again, he says, You never threw me a party. A lack of assurance of the Father's love. You see, as long as you are trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure that you have been good enough. As long as we are trying to earn salvation through our goodness, 
You will never be sure that you've been good enough. Some of the signs of this are every time something goes wrong in our lives, we wonder if it's a punishment or, or irresolvable guilt. You can't be sure you've, you've repented deeply enough. So you beat yourself up time and again over what you've just done. You become your own, your own flagellatory way of self-sacrificing. There can be a lack of sense of intimacy with God in your prayer life. You pray a lot, you pray a lot of prayer, prayers and ask for things, but you don't sense the closeness and assurance of the love of God. Because you'll never be sure if you've been good enough if you're an older brother type. Lastly, as sort of a summary of these signs, we can describe this older brother sometimes as an unforgiving kind of judgmental spirit. The elder brother does not want the father to forgive the younger brother. It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel, I would never do anything that bad. You, you have to be sort of an elder brother and have some of that in you to refuse to forgive. So how do we know if we're elder brothers? Some of us probably have some of these things. Most of us probably have a little bit here and there. If I may borrow a concept from uh, comedian Jeff Foxworthy, who has a whole comedy routine you might called, you, called you might be a redneck if. My friend and I from Johnson City, he's a preacher friend, we came up with our own list. You might be an older brother if. If you're hoping that God will bless you simply because you darkened these doors today, you might be an older brother. If you're more upset about the song that you're singing than who you're singing with or to or about, you might be an older brother. If you haven't really greeted anybody else, but you're wondering why more people haven't greeted you, you might be an older brother. If nobody ever seems as good or as right or as smart as you, you might be an older brother. I hear my, my wife, who's not even here in KFC, going, that's you right there. If everybody always wrongs you, but you're pretty sure you've not wronged any of them, you might be an older brother. If spots on the church carpet bother you more than lost souls, if you're more concerned that you are at church rather than what you're doing here or you're bringing to the table, if you feel... You have the right to tell the Father what to do with what you call your possessions because you've obeyed Him perfectly. You might be an older brother. If you come to church on a regular basis and the rest of your, your life doesn't seem to reflect it, you might be an older brother. If you come to church out of duty more than a desire to worship your Savior and your Lord, you might be an older brother. If you have a hard time 
being excited when others receive and experience real grace and mercy. You might be an older brother. If you don't, if you don't particularly care whether this church blesses or reaches the community, you might be an older brother. If you don't like, I might be an older brother jokes, you might be an older brother. (laughs) Hey, listen, I I didn't like some of those. Because it points out that the internal is sometimes more focused on getting the benefits and the things of this world than the character and nature of God himself. Some of you may be thinking, oh, come on, you're being harsh. Am I? Or is this exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is teaching here in this parable? And we just don't like it. Is it harsh to lay down the essence of the gospel in clear enough terms that are easily understood so that we can come to terms with it? Because the alternative to knowing and the loving God and clearly understanding the gospel of grace is spending eternity away from Him. So it is incumbent upon me, as a teacher of the Word, to lay down clearly what is really involved in lostness and grace. Maybe as Christ's example here shows, where both lostness is clearly described by Jesus' parable and grace is visibly demonstrated by the Father and by the Christ's example, maybe it's grace. If lostness is a real condition, it needs a real solution. What do we do about this spiritual condition? This is the third point here. The spiritual condition of lostness that we've described today. A couple things. First, I think we have to see the uniqueness of the gospel and its implications for our lives and the lives of others. What that means for us is that we have to go look for lost sheep. Friends, you may not think it, you may not like it, you may not know it, you may not feel gifted in this way, but in some way, all of us are called to be shepherds. Jesus ends the parable with the lostness of the older brother in order to get across the point that it is a more dangerous spiritual condition. The younger brother actually knew that he was alienated from the father, but the older brother did not. If you tell moral and religious people who are trying to be good, trying to, be, trying to obey the Bible so that God will bless them, if you try to tell them that they are alienated from God, they will just plain be offended. If you know you are sick, you might go to the doctor. If you don't, you won't. Lostness is a real condition. You see, moralistic, moralistic kind of older brother religiosity, it works in the principle, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel Jesus is here proposing works on the exact opposite principle. I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. These are two radically different, even opposite dynamics. 
Yet both sets of people sit in church together, pray, obey the Ten Commandments, but for radically different reasons. And because they do these things for radically different reasons, they produce radically different results. Different kinds of character. One very easily produces anger, joyless compliance, superiority, insecurity, and a condemning spirit. We've all known some of that in our lives. And how badly do we want to have the other kind of inevitably producing commitment character, joy and humility and peace and forgiving spirits? Unless a person and a congregation knows the difference between general religiosity and the true gospel, people will constantly fall into moralism and older brotherishness. And if you call younger brothers to receive Christ and to live for him without making this kind of distinction between general religiosity and a real relationship with God, if you don't make that clear, you will automatically baptize people into becoming older brothers. You see, the church has become really good at baptizing people and making them into older brothers. We fashion them in our own image. Sometimes, rather than being about developing people into disciples who love God and have an understanding of sin and grace and fostering the character of God in them, we develop people who become good at judging their own service, moral goodness, against another person, even another church, as the reasons that we are accepted, we are right. The church has also become the kind of place that is so sadly unlike the Father in this story. It so thoroughly and completely grieves me how sadly little our hearts reflect the Father's heart to search for lost sheep and coins and sons. I count myself among that apathetic lot, friends. When was the last time? When was the last time your heart grieved like the Father's over lost souls? When was the last time your heart grieved over lost souls more than getting your kids to school on time? When was the last time you turned over the mattresses to search for those who desperately need to know the Lord? You see, if we American, if we American believers spent just a fraction of the amount of time and effort and money and energy that we spend on looking good, or fancying up our houses, or securing financial peace, or following and playing sports, or militaristically guarding my time. Just a fraction. Just a fraction of that time and effort and money and energy. We would not have enough pews. Just 
of fraction. You see, this father is proactive, to say the least. He doesn't just start a party and wait for people to come. He doesn't say, like Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. We say things like, oh, sure, we're a welcoming church. And we are. You walk in those doors, and we will welcome you. This is a son who says, go find lost sheep. Turn over the mattresses, put up the couches, and search for lost coins. And go find those lost sons and friends and neighbors. Being lost is not a fun condition, friends. Being lost and realizing no one's looking for you has got to be worse. And that describes a condition in which billions of people in the world are in. And we are happy to stay here. When we have an incredibly palpable example of the Father Himself extending grace in ways that can only be described as prodigal. Second, we must come to Jesus in worship. We must come to him in worship. Remember again to whom Jesus is speaking in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is speaking to his mortal enemies. The men he knows will end up killing him. On the one hand, this is an astonishingly bold challenge to them. He's talking to those who want to kill him and telling them that they are lost. That they fundamentally misunderstand God's salvation and purpose in the world. And that they are trampling on the heart of God. But at the same time, he is being loving and tender in ways that go so far beyond our imagination. To think that the infinitely holy and perfect God of the universe, or universe says, whatever you want to think about the world, God made it, and he made you. And we are, we are so like those lost coins and sheep and sons. And yet, and yet... He lovingly, tenderly, graciously comes out to meet us. We see here a foreshadowing of that moment on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This kind of love toward his own enemies is a vulnerability that ended up costing Jesus his own life. And on the cross, instead of blasting his enemies, whom he knew were wrong, he lovingly took the penalty of sins for himself. Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. 
So, so knowing what he did for us must, must drain us of self-righteousness. We were so sinful, he had to die for us. But we were so loved that he was glad to do so. That takes away both the pride and the fear that make us older brothers. One Bible teacher said this, once again we have the amazing truth that it is easier to confess to God than it is to many men. That is, that God is more merciful in his judgments than many an orthodox man. That the love of God is far broader than the love of man. And that God can forgive when men refuse. And he says this to end. In the face, in the face of a love like that, we cannot be anything other than lost in wonder and love and praise at the Father who comes out to meet us. Let's stand and proclaim that wonder and love and praise to the Father who comes out to meet us.